This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. It is now my pleasure to introduce Jacqueline Woodson, author of Red at the Bone and many others. Uh, Jacqueline Woodson is the best-selling author of more than two dozen award-winning books, including the 2016 New York Times best-selling National Book Award finalist for adult fiction, Another Brooklyn. Among her many accolades, Woodson is a four-time National Book Award finalist, four-time Newbery Honor winner, a two-time NAACP Image Award winner, and a two-time Coretta Scott King Award winner. That's a mouthful, and I don't think she's done. Um, So uh, she lives with her family in New York. Um, Read at the Bone, infused with her signature insight and rich poetic prose, opens in 2001 in Brooklyn. The occasion is Melody's coming-of-age ceremony. Charting the course of two families from different classes, Woodson's affecting narrative tackles identity, ambition, desire, and parenthood, as well as exploring how the decisions young people make change generations to come. Terry Jones is quoted as saying, Woodson brings the readers so close to her young characters that you can smell the bubble gum on their breath and feel their lips as they brush against your ear. Woodson will be in conversation with Lynn Neary, longtime NPR arts correspondent. That said, please Join me in warmly welcoming Jacqueline Woodson and Lynn Neary to Politics and Prose. Hello. So I'm going to read a short bit from chapter two of Red at the Bone, which is told from alternating points of view. And this is Aubrey the father of Melody, who's having her coming-of-age ceremony. Can everyone hear me? Okay. His daughter was descending the stairs. As the orchestra his in-laws had paid for played, she was taking each step as though the world had stopped for her, as though this moment were the only moment on earth with her in it. And she was fine as hell, this girl. No, this woman. The seed of his, this cry into the night, this apology of a child. Iris, I didn't mean to. Damn, I'm so, so sorry. When had it happened? Purr with so much of Iris, the cheekbones, the slant of the eyes, the smile with so much. What was that thing behind their smiles? Some long held secret about you. Both of them knowing you knowing what you'd been up to, as though they could see, taste, and smell it on you. Aubrey had seen that smile so many times over the past 14, no, 15, 16 years. Where were the years? And still, and still, this moment with Melody walking toward them and this whack-ass rendering of Prince filling the house. Aubrey leaned back against the wall, His hands felt unsure suddenly. Iris had pressed hers to her mouth, but what is the father of the child supposed to do with his hands? His big open hands, where were they supposed to go when all they wanted to do was reach out for his child, hug her, hide her from the world? These hands that had learned at 17 how to snatch smelly diapers away from her tiny body, rub A&D ointment over her rashed behind, Hold her until the singing stopped, 
until the crying stopped, hold her over his shoulder with his massive hand behind her fragile head, then on his chest, in his lap, in his arms, on his back, both shoulders, his hand on her shoulder as she scooted too fast away from him. Who was this now, descending the stairs? This child he made and raised and loved. God, how he loved every single cell dividing. The coarseness of her hair, the deep vulnerable hollow in her neck, the half moons beneath her nails. <clears throat> Those show how many boyfriends you're gonna have. Watch out, world. And her tears when they began to fade. Does that mean no one's ever going to love me, daddy? His baby girl was coming down those stairs, and he was crying now, outright and silently, and no one had told him to do what to do with his hands. As he slid them into his pockets, Iris shot him a look. He pulled them out again, quickly wiped at his eyes, clasped behind him, against the wall, arms raised, fingers laced on top of his head, arms folded. What was the right thing? How come he never knew the right thing to do. <clears throat> Thank you. Hi, Jackie. Hey, Lynn. <laughs> so you have a, an incredible career, a long career writing uh, literature for young people. Uh, I don't know if everybody knows this, <clears throat> but Jacqueline is the um, national ambassador for young people's literature, and I think you're Tenure is coming to a close on that Thank one. Thank God. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you also won the uh, National Book Award for Young People's Literature for Brown Girl Dreaming, your memoir. And, uh, uh, but your last book, Another Brooklyn, and this one are written for adults. Mm -hmm. So first of all, what made you <clears throat> want to make that shift? So actually between Another Brooklyn and Red at the Bone, I wrote a middle grade book, Harbor Me, and a picture book, um, The Day You Begin. This woman so, is very prolific. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I feel like um, I wanted to, I like all the worlds. Like I like writing for young people. I like writing picture books because it feels like I'm writing poetry. I like writing middle grade because I like the voice of 10, 11, 12 year olds. And I, I like the gaze that adult literature allows me, the way I can kind of stand back and, and look at it from all these different perspectives. And also um, the way I can play with time and the way I can move characters along um, the age brackets, right? And with um, middle grade fiction, and um, with picture books, the characters tend to stay at one age, right? The person telling the story is 10 or 11. Um, with adult books, like with Another Brooklyn, uh, um, the main character, August, is in her 30s, but she's talking about a time when she was 15. Mm -hmm. But it's an adult perspective because she's in her 30s. So I, I just like all the worlds. Well, I think I see a connection between uh, Brown Girl Dreaming uh, mm -hmm. and these... Uh, uh, Books for Adults, Another Brooklyn, and and uh, Red at the Bone. They're really st all stories about young girls from Brooklyn. Um, and you, of course, were a young girl from Brooklyn mm -hmm. yourself. Why do you want to keep returning to that territory? What are you <laughs> mining in that that uh, that uh, that place and the, those kinds of girls? The thing about Brooklyn is you can write about it forever, and it's never going to be the same place. It's constantly changing. So if I'm writing about the Brooklyn of the 70s, it's different than the Brooklyn of the 80s, which is different than the Brooklyn of the 90s and now. Um, looking at some place like what I write about in Bush, uh, Bushwick and another Brooklyn, um, I wrote that book because I wanted to 
explore the Columbusing of a neighborhood, right? Here was this neighborhood that had been, um, when I was growing up in it, black and Latino people and white people moving away. So it was a neighborhood of white flight. And then as I, um, at this point in time, it's now the hipster neighborhood and white folks are moving back into it. And so I'm writing about the same space, but it's very different. And, and, and that's what's interesting to me about New York in general and Brooklyn in particular, that you can write about a specific place at a specific time and then write about it again 10 years later and it be a completely different place. And the, um, the people in it are different. So when you look at um, Sylvia, Angela, Gigi and August in another Brooklyn, they're very different than Melody in um, um, Red at the Bone, even though they're all black girls growing up in Brooklyn. Yeah. So so I can explore all of these different identities um, and know something deep about them and then have all this information that, uh, ha, uh, not have all this information <laughs> and know like nothing at all about some parts of their lives. Well, there's really two young girls in, in, <clears throat> mm-hmm. in this book because it, we know, we meet Melody at, at the same age that we really meet her mother mm-hmm. at for the first time. Her mother's 15 when she becomes pregnant with Melody. Against her parents' wishes, she decides to keep the baby. And everything reverberates at from that from that point, really. Uh, and we see how that affects everybody uh, in the family. And we learn so much about them going back in their history and then moving forward and in, into the present. Um, why did you want to begin with that a 15-year-old girl getting pregnant, and making the decision she made to keep the baby? Um, so it's interesting. It actually, I feel like uh, um, Red at the Bone begins with the Tulsa race massacre, right? It does. So, so, and then, and then the other beginning right. is Melody's um, coming-of-age ceremony, this moment of arrival, of having arrived somewhere. And within that moment, it begins in the middle of it. So I don't start it. You know, Melody was coming down the stairs. I started, but that afternoon there was an orchestra playing because I'm very intentional about showing um, the reader that we are step. I'm dropping you into the middle of someone's life, right? right? And and I think that's the case for we're in the middle of Iris's life when she gets pregnant. You know, we're in the middle of Aubrey's life when he realizes that his girlfriend is pregnant. You know, and so I think. Um, all, it starts at so many different places. Yeah, for me. and you know, I have to say, I hesitated to use that word "begin." I, oh, you know, okay, I did think okay. about that because it's, but it is the event that we move out. It, mm-hmm. It's like a spoke that we move out from, or something, and, like, and like that, that impacts everybody in that, that book. Impacts yeah. everybody. Yeah. yeah, and I just, I, first of all, I love Iris so much, but also I think a lot of times when people think of young people getting pregnant, they see it as an ending, and I, I don't. In that case, I wanted to show this was the beginning of something else. Right. So Iris wants this baby, but then once she becomes a mother, she finds that perhaps it's more than she really took, wanted to take on. Yeah. And, the, and the, so the raising of this child really falls on the father, Aubrey, mm-hmm. and, her, and her parents as well. Um, but again, this is not a depiction that you often see. Uh, uh, you don't see this depiction of a, a black man as the caretaker uh, uh, so often as you as you see I don't I, you know it's interesting I don't think white folks see it a lot I think um I think it exists and I think the the narrative is that black men don't take care of their kids and they do yeah and so I I and in Red at the Bone, again, I was very intentional about showing, yeah, this is someone who, one of many, many, many black men who do take care of their children. Because I think the American narrative is a is a different story and often a lie when it comes to 
a lot of stuff about black folks, but black fatherhood in particular. Well, I think you're right about that. And mm-hmm. I think that's why it's important to, to <clears throat> write that mm-hmm. kind of character. Yeah. And so you did do it very intentionally for yeah. that yeah. reason. Yeah. And also because I want to, I feel like speak truth to power. <laughs> I feel like um, it's important. It's a family saga. Right. And yeah. I wanted to show all the characters and all their roles. Um, I I, I really wanted to paint a full picture of Aubrey and show that he was a loving, fabulous dad, that he was a loving man, that he was a hardworking man, and that for him, fatherhood and family was enough, yeah. you know, to be able to provide for them. It wasn't enough for Iris, but for Aubrey, he was he was happy. You know, he was a he was he was a good guy and he was happy and he was a great father. Yeah. You used the, uh, you called it a family saga, and that's mm-hmm. how I have described it to a lot of people. It's a family mm-hmm. saga. But I think when people hear the word, that phrase, they think of a big tome. <laughs> and this is not that. It's a very slender book, really. Mm-hmm. But that's because of the way you use language, right? the spareness mm-hmm. of your language. You you cut so close to your 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 poet your prose is so much like poetry. Thank do you, you do you think do you think as a poet as you're writing? Everything I write, I read out loud. So it has to look a certain way on the page and sound a certain way before I move on. And so I'm rewriting a lot and I'm honing the language a lot and I'm getting rid of a lot of adjectives um, to get to the essence of the story. And so, yeah, I do. I would say that that's kind of the poetic side of my brain. And it's also what I want. There's an urgency to it, right? There's an urgency to their lives that a lot of adjectives would get in the way of. So I do keep it spare. Yeah. And I was just amazed at how much you were able to get into this story with this spare language. There's a lot of history here. As you mentioned, Mm -hmm. the Tulsa massacre of 1921, which Mm -hmm. I did not know very much about. Yeah. Maybe I probably knew nothing about it. No, a lot of people don't. I think that's an an important point. I think a lot. Okay, raise your hand if you knew about the Tulsa race massacre. Raise your hand if you did not. And y'all know some of you are lying, but it's okay. It's okay. But how much did you know? Anyway, it's it's you work this history into this into this book into this family saga. Tell us a little bit for those of us who don't know very much about it. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about it and and how it fits into this story. So Sabi, who is the grandmother um, who helps raise Melody, uh, the sixteen-year-old, comes from a family that whose um, wealth was destroyed by the Tulsa race massacre, which happened in 1921, where white folks basically came along and and destroyed this wealthy black community. And and they bombed it. They dropped bombs. They shot up people. They set houses on fire. And and the black businesses, they burned them down and basically ran the black folks out of town. Uh, And I don't know why we don't learn about this in our history classes, but it was one of the many times where black wealth or, you know, that aspirational wealth was, you know, cut off at the knee. And, uh, and so Sabi comes from her, her mother almost got killed in the Tulsa race massacre. And, and she carries that history and that story into the next generation. And also, she and her husband create a, a, a really kind of an upper-class life, mm-hmm. really, for themselves mm-hmm. when they get to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Yes. And maintaining that is very important to her. Mm-hmm. So when her 15-year-old daughter gets, <clears throat> and that's some of the most yeah. beautiful writing, when her 15-year-old daughter gets pregnant, <laughs> unmarried, she is not. 
happy. Yeah, it was not the plan. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's not happy at all. And and she's stunned because she had a narrative, right? She had she had a plan for who her daughter was going to become and what was going to happen. Um, and here is her daughter saying, I'm going to keep this baby. Um, and also they were Catholic, you know, right. so there were like so many layers to it. Um, and And I think there is where... I'm talking about motherhood. I mean, I think we have these plans for our children. And I always think of the Sweet Honey in the Rock song. They come, th- your children are not your children. They come through you, but they're not of you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Yeah. And and I think that's so, so true, especially in that scene where Iris is like, this is me and this is my baby and you can't take it away from me. And Sabia is like, what do we do with this? Yeah. But then Iris, as we've already said, she goes off to college and leaves mm-hmm. the baby behind and goes mm-hmm. off to have a life. She wants to have the life. A lot of people would say that's a really selfish choice. <laughs> what do you think? I went and listened to a lot of people. <laughs> um, I, you, she, one, at one point in the book, she says, I was only 15. I wasn't even anybody yet. And I think that a 16-year-old knows everything they want and very little about what they want. Um, and, and then they eventually discover it. So you, at 16, she's still red at the bone. She's still discovering who she is and, and her desires are changing. And I have a deep respect for that. I have a deep respect for young people and the way, you know, eventually their frontal lobes connect, but you know, while that (laughs) process is going on, they're changing, they're becoming, they're, they're figuring out everything about who they are. And so that's who Iris was. And, and I, I think, Every teenager is selfish. We were all selfish as teenagers, so it made sense to me. Um, And I think the narrative about motherhood is that a mother has to be a certain way. And that's not, I I don't believe that. I think there are all kinds of ways to be a mother. And I think in terms of Melody, in the end, she she had an amazing life. You know, she had amazing caregivers and she had people who loved her. And and that's what matters. She had a dad who just adores her uh-huh. and as you said and her grandparents and her grandparents both but i mean as you said he's he's willing to he doesn't care about success and and there's a lot here also he's from well, a he different doesn't care about certain i mean he's a successful dad yeah, and he's no. a, a, okay. a successful you're right um and he worked he's a successful mailroom worker right okay. and he's um a successful family man. So he doesn't, he doesn't care about the same things Iris cares about. And that, that's uh, the point that they grow apart, which makes sense because they're 15 when, yeah. when this starts and they're 16 when they become parents, which is amazing. It, it's kind of mind blowing to me, but I guess not too mind blowing because I wrote the book. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's a lot here about class too, which mm-hmm. is another thing that I think, uh, you know, white America probably doesn't know very much about either, mm-hmm. which is the differences in class within the black community. That, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's another thing that you really explore here that I think mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think white America doesn't know about I don't because they don't live with black people a lot of the time. Well, we live with white people. We don't I live know. with white people. We know about white class. <laughs> it's interesting. It is so interesting because I wonder if, if um, I, I don't know how white folks see black folks but i wonder do they just see us all as one as black folks like it depends on where they live honestly mm-hmm. i think it depends on where they live huh yeah i don't know i, I i'm I, gonna say that because I, I i i live in washington and i you know I, mm-hmm. I i think that a lot of people in washington are depending on where you even live in washington uh-huh. you may be more aware of 
of the difference of the class differences. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But that, again, I'm asking you, did you consciously write about that because of the Mm -hmm. fact that people don't think about that? About that white people don't think about that? Okay, that white people don't think about that. No, I don't think about white people when I'm writing. Like, I, I really am writing for myself and I'm not thinking about the white gaze. I think that's a really um, clear point of my writing is that I am writing because I love black people. I really, really love my people. And and that's not, you know, and I'm super, super pro-black, which doesn't mean I'm anti-white. But I, I and and I believe that our stories matter. And so and I, and I grew up in a history in a world where my stories weren't there and and my my desire is to put those stories there. So yeah. the story of of the class divides within the black community is a story is a story that black folks know, you know. So so and it's a conversation we're having with each other about this um, that that white folks are invited to the party of, um, and and it, and and it's a conversation that is it, that the black community is familiar with. Everything from I mean even Sabi. It was so funny because I was talking to a reporter today. Um, from Austin, and she was asking me about um, Sabi always talking about the gold that's hidden away. And she's like, "Is that a thing?" And I was like, <laughs> um, "Like, you know, it's fiction here, and I don't, I can't speak for the whole black community. I don't know if this is a thing. It's not a thing in my house. Like, but, but you know, for my character Sabi, yes, it's a thing. But it was, it was so interesting, um, and I think that." Um, when I, when I was writing it and when I was creating, it, it created conflict. You know, the economic yeah. class thing created conflict. And I'm also trying to talk about generational wealth and why black folks so often don't have it. And it's not because um, we haven't tried to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, but when someone comes along and drops a bomb on your boots, like you yeah. have no bootstraps anymore to pull yourself up by. And I think that's, 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 and so I'm having this conversation and and validating it yeah. for the people who are, you know, getting victimized and having um, and, and feeling lesser than I mean, and in the same way that Aubrey comes from this phenomenal working class, poor family and and he's brilliant. I think that's another um, we see again and again in media myth about um, poor black people that they're not bright. And so to for me, yes, I'm intentionally putting on the page because I've seen this again and again. I grew up in Bushwick, uh, the old Bushwick. And you throw a stone, you hit 10 Jacqueline Woodsons, right? And I'm the lucky one who was able to write the books and get published and get the awards. But I'm not exceptional, you know? And I think the world will want to look at certain people and say, well, you're exceptional as a means of saying they're not. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't I don't ascribe to that. And so so in creating Red at the Bone and in talking about that economic class, I really wanted to be really clear about who these people were and why they mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reading this book around the time that um, Toni Morrison died. Mm. And um, and I I was asked to speak about it, uh, you know, for NPR at a certain mm-hmm. point. And so I was reading about her and um one of the things I came across was, first of all, that she said that she had to start writing because she didn't see the books that she wanted uh, to read out there. So mm-hmm. she had to write them herself. And then I also read that some critic at, at the time that um, when she was starting to write came, said, uh, there's no white people in yes. your books. Yeah, and yeah. I was so struck by that because mm-hmm. 
I see right now so many great black writers writing about black life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colson Whitehead, mm-hmm. Jasmine Ward, Ta-Nehisi, Tyree mm-hmm. Jones. I mean, mm-hmm. all these people. And I thought, is that her legacy? Is is that partially, mm-hmm. maybe not only not only Toni Morrison, but... Like did, James Baldwin. And, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like I'm here because Toni Morrison was here, um, because James Baldwin was here, because Audre Lorde was here. There are so many... Um, Black writers and writers of color in general. Um, so that came before me that kind of said, oh, you can, this is okay. Go tell that story, you know, whether I met them or not. Uh, Alice Walker. Um, and and so, yeah, I think that's what legacy is, right? Someone comes along and knocks down one bodega door and then you're able to walk through that one and get to the next one. But she definitely began, helped other writers inside the publishing worlds to tell their stories. Yeah. You said earlier, I love Iris so much, the <laughs> character of Iris. What, what, what is it you love about Iris? I, I love that she, she is not thinking about how the world sees her. You know, she's making her own choices um, and, and she's kind of forging ahead no matter what. And I think that, that I want, I would love some of that in me. In this way, um, so so you 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 create the world on paper that you want to see out in the world, and I feel like in creating Iris, I put every kind of thing that I would love Jacqueline Woodson to be, <laughs> and except you know a fifteen year old mom, but um, <laughs> a sixteen year old mom, but but I, I I just loved her fire. Yeah, are you the kind of? I mean, I've talked to a lot of writers now in my over my career, and. Um, Everybody has a different approach to writing, it seems to me. But are mm-hmm. you the kind of writer who you set out, you know what each character is going, going to be? Did you have in mind what these characters were going to be? Or do characters reveal themselves yeah. to you? I mean, I, I hear both from writers. And I was wondering, did you did you have these family ca- I figures did, set out in stone to begin with? Or? I No, it's a good question. I didn't. I had... Um, I had an idea of what the story was trying to say. Um, and I had an idea of who Melody and Iris were. Um, and then as I wrote and rewrote and rewrote, like Aubrey was on the page. I couldn't figure out Kathy Marie for the longest time, like what her role was in the story. Um, I knew who Po' Boy was, kind of, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And you know, I, I probably rewrote this book about 30 times. Like it was a lot of rewriting and reading it out loud and trying to figure out the timing and um, the way the characters kind of moved around each other and when certain plot points happened. Um, but then it, it wasn't until I went and wrote that last scene um, that I came back, I, that I kind of realized what I was really trying, to, where I was trying to go with this book. Uh, and then a lot more rewriting. I have to ask you about that last scene. But I, as I was coming to the end of the book, as I said, it's a, it's a small, you know, it's, not, it's, not, it's a mm-hmm. slender book. And I was loving it. And then I was thinking, I don't, I really kind of don't want this to end. And I don't know how she's going to be able to end this, you know, so I'm going to be satisfied because it was a few pages away. You know, you get a few pages yeah. away and you think, this book is going to end. And I'm not quite ready for that, you know. And then I have to tell you guys, nails the ending. Absolutely nail the ending. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe she did that. How did you do that? <laughs> 
I knew if I wrote one other word after that last word, it would be because I was being self-conscious about the writing. <sighs> and so I, I just knew I walked away. I, I was like, there it is. There it is. The ending has literally revealed itself to me. And, and I knew that I had to go back and figure out other stuff in other parts of the book, but I knew that's where it needed to end. And, and when you're writing, you're all, and I'm sure the writers in the audience can speak to this when you're, you're all pensive, you know, pent up and frustrated and you're not sure what's happening. And then when you get to that point where you exhale and you feel some kind of way, cause that book is an, was an emotional journey for me. I mean, I would sit there crying as I'm writing parts of it or laughing because I thought parts were funny and then I read them to my kids and they'd be like, that's not funny. But I was, <laughs> but I, but I, it was definitely like this throughout. And when I got to that ending, I was like, <sighs> like seriously exhaling. I, I, I'm trying to imagine what that's like for a writer to just suddenly to be writing. And then, I mean, did you know you were going, is that, that you, did you know that's where you were going? We, we're talking about an ending. None of you know, but uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to say yeah. she got to a good place. <laughs> I I felt really good about it. And it was a very different feeling than when I ended Brown Girl Dreaming for instance, because that book, I I was a mess after that. I I thought it was done, but for the longest time I was like, this book is a mess. No one's ever going to read it. Why am I even writing it? And, you know, my partner, Juliet was just like, keep writing, keep, you're going to be fine. And I'm, and I finished writing it. I'm like, I'm not fine. Like it's no one's ever going to read this. And, and so when I got to the ending of Red at the Bone, it was such a different feeling like I felt very sure of it another thing I want to ask you about I've talked to you about this once before when I interviewed you music plays Mm -hmm. a big role in your writing and I think that's part of your writing has a lot of musicality to it Mm -hmm. as well as being poetic and yet you're a prose writer Um, but and in it plays a pretty funny role in this book. It opens up with this Prince song at this kind of coming out sort of party. Mm-hmm. And I had to look up the song, I oh. have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but the lyrics, which are not played. <laughs> her mother won't let them, her play them. <laughs> and can you explain it for... So, um, how about I just read it real quick? Okay, okay. This is the opening of the book. I had to pay $6,000 for these lyrics. I'm still mad. (laughs) You know, and if it was going to Prince, I'd be really happy, but it ain't. It's going to his lawyers. (laughs) But that afternoon, there was an orchestra playing, music filling the brownstone, black fingers pulling violin bows and strumming cellos, dark lips around horns, a small brown girl with with pale pink nails on flute. Malcolm's younger brother, his dark skin glistening, blowing somberly into a harmonica. A broad-shouldered woman on harp. From my place on the stairs, I could see through the windows curious white people stopping in front of the building to listen. And as I descended, the music grew softer, the lyrics inside my head becoming a whisper. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fame. (laughs) No vocalist. The little girl didn't know the words. The broad-shouldered woman, having once belted them out loud while showering, was now saved and refused to remember them. (laughs) Iris wouldn't allow them to be sung, and Malcolm's brother's sweet seven-year-old mouth was full. Still, they moved through my head as though Prince himself were beside me. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. (laughs) 
Oh, that's great. <laughs> I just love the juxtaposition of this orchestra playing. Mm-hmm. And and that's the song they're playing. And we I just did um last the night before last uh, an event with Toshi Regan at Joe's Pub and we had an we had a three-piece ensemble, two violins and a cello. Um and her on guitar and we played that song. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> but ha- I mean, is music in your head as you're writing? All the time. I, I, the minute I start writing, I put my earphones on. And I keep the same playlist for years, sometimes adding songs in. But that that's the way I race the world. I put my music on. The world is gone. I'm in the world of my characters. But then it has to have some influence on, on the way you write. It does. It does. So everything from, you know, Eric Garner, um, um, for, from, um, yeah, Garner, um, Billie Holiday, um, Wu-Tang, Prince, uh, all the music in that book is music I added to my playlist to kind of not only hear the music, but to get the rhythm for the book. When yeah. you look at another Brooklyn, I was listening to a lot of jazz because I was trying to get to this jazzy rhythm for the telling of the story. And this was because it spans 1920s to 2000s. I had a whole longer playlist. Janine, I Dream of Lilac Time, like yeah. most of the songs in that book. I list I listen to to get to that place. Well, I want to leave some time for people to ask questions, but I had one other question for you about being the ambassador for children's <laughs> literature, which, as I I gather, you're not sorry to be uh, <laughs> two years. But I just wonder what you've. What you, I know you've done probably done a lot of traveling with that, met with mm-hmm. a lot of young people, and yeah. what I, what is your takeaway? Thousands. There's a, so my platform, you know, my motto is reading equals hope times change. And I was going around the country. The um, groups I chose to um, talk to were Title I schools, um, people in Title I schools and juvenile detention centers. And I had hoped to visit them in all 50 states. And I, what I learned was how many juvenile detention centers exist in each state. You know, so it's impossible. I mean, it was impossible for one person. And there's a lot of need, and there are a lot of young people who are so deeply hungry for literature. Um, and there are a lot of book deserts across this country. And I, you know, wonder if that's by accident or design. Um, and and that the next ambassador, um, um, the next person who comes along, or people. Uh, have their work cut out for them, but I think it's going to be an easier journey because we're going to make some changes. Um, but it, but it's amazing work, and there are a lot of readers, and uh, there are a lot of kids with a lot of stories. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. So I want to open the floor to questions. We have microphones at the end of each aisle. Oh, there's so. a, a microphone right here, and... Uh, there's one over here. Okay, shy people. So if you don't ask me the question here, you cannot ask me while I'm signing your book. <laughs> I know how that goes. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, I got the book out of the library. Thank you. Am I on? Um, a couple of days ago, I started reading it yesterday evening, and I finished when I was sitting here. Mm-hmm. It had me in tears at the end. But I also have to say, I also read the acknowledgments, mm. which were also ended beautifully. Thank you. And it was like another, uh, at my heart. <laughs> and, and really, if I hadn't been sitting here, I would have burst into tears. It was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for reading it. Thanks for getting it out of your library, too. I mean, I love independent bookstores, and I love libraries. I was shocked I got it so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead, sir. Uh, my question is one that uh, you hear a lot here uh, at Book Talks, and, and partly because I, I tend to ask the questions sometimes. <laughs> um, 
Reddit the Bone and movies do you expect, want? Are you already committed to... Uh, I, I ask uh -huh. this anytime I hear a good saga. That's immediately, <laughs> uh -huh. especially if it's read and if the language makes me see images, then hmm. it's sort of an obvious question. Am I going to see these images On the big as screen. images? Right, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's funny because movies and books are so different. Like the the writing and the creating is a very visual experience for right. me. I can definitely see the characters moving along the um, throughout the story, but I don't think about film. I mean, I, my my film agent thinks about film, and <laughs> I let her do that. But I don't actively mm. try to get something on the screen because for me, it's so deeply satisfying to do the book. Right. Okay. Have you had anything made into a film? Uh, Miracles Boys was made into a miniseries. Um, and I am actually writing um, Behind You into a series, um, which I had never, of all the books, I had never thought that was the book that would become a series. Um, but, but I think, and I think that's it. I might be missing something. A lot of writers are disappointed, of course, when their books are turned into films <laughs> and TV yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would join that circle of people. <laughs> Thank you. We got another question here? Hi. Oh, wait, I think we got somebody. In the <laughs> Thank room. you. I am always curious to know whenever there's an author that I love what they're reading. And so mm -hmm. what are you excited about, uh, you know, sort of reading in terms of whether writers of color or uh -huh. what's, what's, what's new and exciting? Um, on, Earth, we're brief, on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous oh, yeah. blew me away. Mm -hmm. uh, ta new book, um, The Water Dancer. Sorry. I, I talk about exhaling because, you know, um, he wrote, uh, he's, he writes nonfiction and he, he's a friend. So I was like, oh, please let this book be good. Please let this book be good. <laughs> and it, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, I just started Ann Patchett's The Dutch House, oh, which is good. really great. I'm usually reading more than one book at a time. Um, and and I, I can't remember what else I'm reading. I think I'm rereading the Black Panther comics because I just like them. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Great. Go ahead. Hi. Hey. Um, external from your work in Title I schools, um, I'm interested to know how many people of color actually interview you and what your experience is also with interacting with uh, queer people mm -hmm. in the literary community and what their reactions have been to the spaces that you're in and huh. um, how much you like or dislike the people who you interact with, yes. <laughs> um, you know, like just kind of how many queer people of color do you actually interact with in the literary scene? And um, how has that impacted what you write and how you feel in your career steps? That's a great question. You know, it's so funny. You know, I think about all the fluid people I know without going like this. Um, I, uh, I think that our world, my world, you know, my world is mostly queer because I'm queer. So, um, but in terms of like who interviews me, uh, I, I, I get a lot of interviews by black women, not always queer women. Um, and some women, I'm trying to think, I just, um, I don't know. It's so funny because it's just, for me, it just kind of ebbs and flows I'm in terms of who's asking me what. But, um, I don't know. It's such a good question. In terms of interacting with queer writers, 
there are lots of us right. and right. and we're a small group you know we we tend to gravitate toward each other i feel like back in the 90s it would be when there was um conferences like outright and places where queer writers could gather and talk about stuff there was a lot more of that but as as the world changed. Um, we got kind of got separated from each other, and um, so so it's kind of like you know when I'm sitting talking to Ocean or something, it feels like home mm-hmm. and, in a very different way. But I I keep my circle. I keep my people close, and and that's um, and some of them are writers. A lot of them are artists. Um, many of them are queer, and and that's because. When I go out into the world, so often that's not the world I go out into, and it's important for me to hold home close. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, So um, I'm reading, I'm almost done with Last Summer with Maisel Uh and The Two Best Friends. Mm -hmm. I've read Brown Girl Dreaming sometime before that. and it, somewhere in between, uh, you talked about your friend um, a Mar- few doors down from you. Maria. Yeah, Maria. Uh-huh. And how you guys were best friends. Um, how is that what inspired you to make <laughs> Last Summer with Maisel? Definitely. That's a great question. Yeah, Last Summer with Maisel actually took place on the block I grew up on. Uh, Madison Street and um, and um, Mason isn't. I I feel like I'm both Mason and Margaret in this way. But my friendship with Maria, who I'm still very good friends with, was definitely inspired um, inspired that friendship. The people in the neighborhood that I knew as a kid definitely inspired people like Miss Dell um, and Margaret's mother. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of me in that book. And I think that's cause it was my first novel. So it was, stu- I was writing what I knew. And of course, Brown Girl Dreaming is a memoir. So that's a lot of me. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. I haven't read the book. That's okay. I grew up in Harlem on Sugar Hill. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of friends in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you something about the nature of black people who seek colorism, mm-hmm. black, light, mm-hmm. light, as Langston Hughes says, there's a kind of category for all of us that we have in ourselves. Have you written about that or talked about it or been asked about it? No, because I don't care. You know, I think there's so... I just made a commentary. Oh, no. Yeah, no. I, it's not It's not some... I feel like when I'm st- sitting down to write, I'm writing about... I'm writing from this place of love for my people and, and not of a place of, you know... I feel like of all the things I can critique in the community, that's not one I care enough about to go deep into. Um, and, you know, I live in a, fa- I have my family. If you saw my family, you'd be like, what are those? Like, it's such a, it's such a family that spans so many shades and so many ethnicities and so many languages that I never want anyone in the family to feel lesser than. And so to even begin to write and have people call each other out around us, it just, it, it feels so remedial to me in this way that I, it, it, I'm not interested. So I've never written about it. Thank you. 
So you mentioned that you rewrote this particular book like 30 times. Mm-hmm. So this kind of a process question about, well, but how long did it actually take you to write the book is one question. And also, um, you also said you read a lot of different books at one time, but are you ever writing more than one piece at the same time? Oh. I'm usually working on two or three books at the same time. And not necessarily in the same genre. So if I'm writing middle grade, I'm also working on a picture book and maybe an adult book. Or right now I'm working on an article for the New York Times and I'm working on the screenplay and I'm working on a middle grade book. Um, so and I I um, and that's what slows me down. Um, but then when I'm really, really into a book, that's the only thing I can work on. So it gets to the point where I have to just focus on that one book. And in terms of. Um, uh, Red at the Bone, I feel like it started in 2015. And I've always been interested in the Tulsa Race Massacre and and the absence of it in a narrative, Mm -hmm. especially in our daily narratives Mm -hmm. and in our historical narratives. So I knew I was going to write about that some way, somehow. And also the... um, the stereotypes around teenage pregnancy, mm-hmm. I, I, that was on my brain. And when I, I always say I write because I have questions, not because I have answers. And I kept saying, what if, what if, what if, and what does this mean? And also in terms of going back to thinking about generational wealth and often the lack thereof in black communities, I really wanted to speak to that and, and understand that on a deeper level. And that's when I started with Red at the Bone, but it started in different stages. And fi- and I, w- I always take notes and I'm writing down character sketches and stuff. Did you stuff. know it was going to be the same book? Like as you, like you're just... Yeah. Yes, you yeah, I do know that those okay. notes are going toward that okay. book. Okay, okay, thank you. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm a middle school teacher. And thank you. we are... <laughs> We are planning to use After Tupac and Dee Foster as well as Brown Girl Dreaming this year. Mm -hmm. And um, I just had a parent reach out to me last week that she would rather her son not read After Tupac and Dee Foster because she was so fixated on the subplot with one of the girls' brother being um, wrongfully imprisoned that her son could not relate to that and she didn't want him to read that book. So Mm -hmm. I have drafted and redrafted my response Mm -hmm. and now I want to do a Jacqueline Woodson unit. So, so she was upset about the um, brother being in prison, not that the brother was queer and in prison. Um, she didn't mention the issue, any uh-huh. concern about the brother being queer, just that she didn't want her son re- reading about um, gangs and imprisonment. And there are no gangs in that book. I know. So I was wondering, like, did we even read the same book? Did uh-huh. you even read the book? Because mm-hmm. we have to have parents read the books that we plan to use in our classrooms. Mm-hmm. So um, I still haven't replied to that email. Mm-hmm. And I guess, but really my question is, um, you know, I think it's so important for us to bring um, lots of different books into the classroom for Mm -hmm. the kids, um, especially for the kids who um, are used to reading books about themselves, right, are used to seeing themselves and don't even realize that. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I should expect that there's going to be, you know, this pushback. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was just wondering if you had any advice um, or words of encouragement (laughs) (laughs) or will you just come to our school? (laughs) I I think, I don't know if you've noticed, but she does speak her mind. Uh, (laughs) I know. Talk about start from the letter A. Um, So I, I, I'm, I'm stumbling, but I think, you know, of course, if a mom's, 
if the kid knows his mom is saying don't read that book, he's already finished it. Right. Um, right. But so you're reading it as a class read. So we're going to uh, offer that as an option mm-hmm. um, along with um, Ghost as oh, well Ghost as The Skyman. Ghost is fabulous. And as well as Mockingbird. So they'll have four choices. Mockingbird. Catherine Erskine. Um, oh, and then Ghost, and then The Skin I'm In, and then mm-hmm. um, After Tupac and Dee Foster. And so the idea, the the focus of the unit is on identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and also we want the students writing a narrative and using the book mm-hmm. that they're reading for inspiration, looking at the, the author's writing style. Um, and so that's... You know, that I love that you're giving them so many options. And I think that's really important. I I don't even don't even respond. He doesn't have to read it. You know, what's going to happen is hopefully he'll read Ghost, which is phenomenal. Right. And um, and then they'll the kids will be talking about it and loving it and he'll want to read it. So, you know, and that's not you putting it into his hands. That's so much of that happens by word of mouth from people their own age. So I, I wouldn't even respond to her. Just, you know. Keep on moving. Like, there's so many times in this world where you just have to push past and keep on moving. Thank you. Thank you. That made me think of something, though, because we're heading into banned book week, which happens every (laughs) year. And have you had any any trouble? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Have I not? I was was talking about this in that New York Times piece um, when... I remember Judy Bloom calling me up and saying she's doing this anthology called The Places That I've Never Meant to Be um, about people whose work has been challenged. And I'm like, well, my work hasn't been challenged. She's like, oh, yes, it has. And and a lot of times when your work gets challenged, you don't even know, right? Because it's not like they're calling you up saying, you know, I'm taking your book out of my classroom or I don't want my, my, my son or daughter reading your book. So she, of course, other people know more than you do about it. Um. And so, yeah, my work has been challenged. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't respond. I mean, we well, don't know about it necessarily, I, but have you ever had to Some people know about it. I remember when Scholastic was first publishing from the Notebooks of Melon and Son, which was their first queer book ever. Um, and, excuse me, I did an interview in Out Magazine, and they um, talked about that book. That book wasn't even published yet, that this was a book Scholastic was publishing. And I got all these letters from sixth graders um, it's somewhere in Washington state, like handwritten letters where the teacher had had an assignment to write to say why this book shouldn't be published. And it was like, we don't want Jacqueline Woodson, an African-American woman to publish, to write a book about a lesbian mother and her, and like, and there were so many misspelled words. And I mean, African-American was mis. And I literally, it was about 30 letters. I went through each one and corrected all the, and sent them right back. I was so mad. <laughs> so I just went through it with a purple pen because I don't like red pens. Um, and I just returned them to them. But, you know, that was when I was in my 20s. Now I just ignore it. But back then... <laughs> Any other questions? We have time for one more question, or if, if uh, everybody is ready, we can move to the signing. Yeah. I really am not answering them while I'm signing. <laughs> I'm, I'm so serious. Okay, okay. We got one. <laughs> okay, I couldn't resist. Um, it, I was struck by you saying that you wanted to write about the Tulsa um, massacre because it was something that we didn't know. Um, I've really been struck by so many African-American writers of fiction. I think fiction tells a truth that... Mm-hmm. Um, nonfiction can't and journalism doesn't want to address. Hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering what you think about 
the kind of fiction that's being written, particularly by writers of color. I mean, I'm stark. I just was sitting there thinking about, well, Tiara Jones. An American marriage. marriage. Uh-huh. about, you know. The wrongful incarceration. Wrongful incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, Attica Locke writes about white supremacy. Uh-huh. Even The Hate You Give. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they're all books that, like, I thrust upon people because I want to say, no, you have to read this because maybe then this will be your entryway right. mm-hmm. exactly. into yeah. trying to find out about these other things. I'm, I'm wondering what sort of books you've been struck by. Clearly your book, you, you want to, you want people to know about real things mm-hmm. that you write fiction. I'm yeah. wondering other books that you Yeah, um, when I think of something like Jessamine Ward's Sing Unburied Sing, mm-hmm. um, and, and of course um, Tiari's book and Ta-Nehisi's and Colson and um, I, I, I think what strikes me about them is they're speaking truth and they're also telling amazing stories. Mm-hmm. So they're really beautifully written. There, there's, there's, there is that entryway that makes it easier on the heart, right? To be able to fall in love with these characters and care deeply for them and want to see the world changed because of that. And so I think that kind of reading builds empathy. It builds understanding, um, as Dr. Rudin Sims Bishop talks about, um, in keeping with the need to cite black women, because we often don't get cited. We just have our quotes thrown around the world and not get credit for them. But in keeping in with that, um, she talked about the importance of um, young people having mirrors and windows. So mirrors so that they see reflections of themselves and windows so that they see into other possibilities in other worlds and other narratives. And I think that what good fiction does is it really does give us a window into those worlds and makes uh, our, the lives of those people and makes us understand them on a deeper level. And, and so it builds empathy. So I, I think the lesson I learned from writing for kids is that you can't be didactic. That the minute you're didactic, someone's going to stop reading your book, especially young people. They write because they want to hear a good story. They don't write because they want to learn. They read textbooks to learn. And so, um, and, I, and I bring that to the adult writing. Like, there are things I want to say. There are questions I want to ask. There are conversations I want to have on the page. And I don't want it to feel like I'm trying to teach somebody something because I do, I'm not. I'm, I'm writing to learn myself. Uh, so and, and I feel like like from Sing Unburied Sing, even from The Water Dancer, I just felt like I learned so much about um, the Underground Railroad, about about the lives of people who came before me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.